Good evening, everyone. Happy New Year 2014, and welcome to a brand new semester of Stewart Observatory Public Evening Lectures here at the Stewart Observatory of the University of Arizona in Tucson, Arizona. We welcome you to the observatory. We also welcome you, listen, those of you listening to us on the World Wide Web via iTunes U or streaming at www.as.arizona.edu. And a special hello to our friends at the Astronomical Society of Kansas City. So, first of all, before I introduce tonight's speaker, this is a little experiment. In the 14 years that I've been hosting this series, I have never had a talk scheduled when school is not in session. So classes don't begin till Wednesday. Notice you don't see under, any undergraduate students, or very many here. So there's no extra credit for tonight's lecture. I don't have the stamp. I don't have to make that announcement. However, the 21-inch Raymond E. White Jr. telescope will be open for public viewing. I did call two of those undergraduates in to open up the telescope at 8.30. So if you wish, it'll be a little cold up there, but you can go up to the historic Stewart Dome, and I believe the moon and Jupiter are the two bright things that are out this evening for your viewing pleasure and you're welcome to do that after tonight's talk. Also, uh, I hope you had a chance to pick up a flyer for this semester's public evening lecture. There's one change. We ran those flyers off at about 2 o'clock this afternoon, and then at 4.30, somebody walked into my office, Dr. Cameron Hummels, and said, oh, I'll do the lecture on February 10th. So if you'd like to briefly, quickly write that into that flyer where it says TBA, we will actually have a lecture on the moon by Dr. Cameron Hummels, who is one of our postdocs here at the University of Arizona Stewart Observatory. All right, uh, without further ado, I will introduce tonight's speaker. Oh, one other announcement. If you are not on our email distribution list, it's up there on the back table. Feel free to leave us your name and email, and we'll make sure that you get things like this schedule when they come out and all announcements of activities here at Stewart Observatory. All right, tonight's speaker is another one of our postdoctoral fellows. In fact, he's a Sagan fellow. And you know I'm from Cornell, so you know anything to do with Carl Sagan, that's great. Um, Dr. Jared Mayles received his bachelor's degree in physics from the University of Nebraska. But while he was at University of Nebraska, he was also in the ROTC program which means he then went in the Navy. He was an officer on a submarine. For how many years were you in the Navy? Seven. Seven years. And then after leaving the submarine, he came here into our graduate program. He just graduated last year. He's one of our PhDs in astronomy, and he's involved with our big planetary group. Uh, we have a whole group of people here that are out there trying to find planets around other stars. Uh, you know the story, let's find who's the race to first find the first Earth, right, around another star. So uh, he is a, as I said, a Sagan fellow, and he's uh, spending that fellowship here at the University of Arizona. So without further ado, I call upon Dr. Jared R. Mayles to speak on the topic, Planets in the Habitable Zone, the Challenges of Direct Imaging. Jared. Thanks, Tom. Can everybody hear me? Do I need to move this closer? Okay. So yeah, a lot of people think it's weird that I went from being a submariner to being an astronomer, but my, 
my idea is that those two jobs are actually pretty similar because when I was on the boat, I usually stayed up all night on the midwatch and looked out a periscope. And now I stay up all night and look out a telescope. And the, there's, you know, no one shoots at you when you're an astronomer. But other than that, there's actually a lot of similarities. So it's not that crazy that I made that, that career change. Um, so um, what I wanted to talk to you um, tonight a little bit about is, as Tom said, there's kind of a, a race to find the first Earth. And I would say that it, depending on what you mean by find and what you mean by Earth, that race is either already won or is just getting started. And from my perspective, it's just getting started because I build instruments. I'm someone who does the engineering and writes the software and takes a camera to a telescope to try to take a new image that no one's ever taken before. And so this is a process we call direct imaging, where we try to capture light from a planet directly from the planet rather than inferring properties of the planet from the star. And we're going to talk about these in detail in a little bit. Um, but this is a really challenging thing. And to sort of introduce that, I'll show you this image, which many of you have probably seen before. And before we move on, I want to say that um, I work on the Magellan AO project, and I have stickers, which I'm going to be giving away as a prize for audience participation. <laughs> so um, shout out the answers if you know them. So there's something kind of special. First of all, who knows what planet this is? OK, that's too many of you. I'd give away all my. So there's something kind of special hidden in this image. So that's right. Somebody said there. I think that was Vern over there, wasn't it? See that? Somebody said moon. There's probably, there probably is a moon in that, that picture. So that's the Earth. And so what we're doing, what Cassini's doing here, I, the, nowadays we call this a selfie, because we, we're taking a picture of ourselves, right? And so what Cassini, the, the NASA spacecraft Cassini is doing here is it's using Saturn as a coronagraph to block out the, the sun, which is 10 billion times brighter than that little, little dot there. And um, I like this picture and this picture, which is the famous pale blue dot picture that um, Carl Sagan was, um, wrote a whole book about. And compare, whoops, whoa, wrong button. So compare you know, that image and that image to this one from Apollo 17. And think about the amount of information that this picture gives you, right? This is clearly a water world. It also has continents. There's, you can see vegetation under the clouds there. Um, that's what that dark shadow is. Um, there are clouds. If we put a spectrograph on that image, we would see uh, the lines of water and oxygen. And we'd figure out that there was um, Methane and oxygen were, in, were not in chemical equilibrium, so there's some process um, keeping them from um, equilibrating. Anybody have any ideas what that process is? It's photosynthesis and you. So life is making that atmosphere appear the way it is. But how do you go from that image, right? There's that pale blue dot right there, or even that image, and figure all that stuff out. How do you figure out that that blue marble is a life-bearing world, and it has all this rich weather and biology going on on it. And so this is the challenge, is once you know a planet's there, how do you characterize it? 
fundamentally, we want to know what its temperature is. And then from there, we want to figure out things like, does it have oceans and continents and clouds and what kind of chemistry is going on in its atmosphere? And really, the scientific question that drives me is, could we go live on it? Is this a habitable planet? Is this a place that could support life like we know? And so this leads to a, a, a concept we call the habitable zone. And this is the, I guess you would call the canonical or typical or sort of most widely used definition of the habitable zone is this region around a star where on a rocky planet, water on the surface would be liquid. And this very helpful NASA graphic, as you can see, if planets get too close to their stars, they catch on fire. And if they get too far away, they turn into snowflakes. And what they're really illustrating is too close to the star, you're too hot. Too far away, you're too cold. And there's this magic um, band illustrated in green here where water will stay liquid throughout the orbit of that planet. And the key quantity that we need to understand to understand the habitable zone is the temperature of the planet. And as I said, too hot, the water evaporates. And then what happens is it eventually will escape into space if you can't keep liquid water on the surface. And if it's too cold, it freezes and um, will prevent life from occurring. So this really leads us to the, to the main topic that, we, that I wanted to cover today is how do we figure out temperature? This is really what direct imaging about, is about, is characterizing planets, finding their temperature. And this is when we have to know how bright the star is. So everybody um, probably knows by now that there are many different types of stars in the sky. And our star is just sort of a typical G2 star. But there are O, B, and A stars and F stars that are much brighter. And there are K and M stars and even brown dwarfs, which are much fainter. And a brighter star will be hotter, so you have to be further away from it. And so we care about distance from the star, too. We have to know both of those things. And then we also have to understand what the planet is made out of. If it's just a big gas giant like Jupiter, it probably not, doesn't even have a real surface. So it's not going to have liquid water on a surface. And if it's too small, it might not have enough gravity to maintain uh, water, an atmosphere, and keep water on its surface. So there's all these questions. And then even once we know how big it is and what its composition is, we have to then understand what it's made out of. It could just be a solid ball of rock and have no water on it for different reasons than its distance from the star. So these are all questions that we have to answer. And even sort of understanding that question, there are still many answers to exactly how far away, how close can you be. And without going into too much detail on these, these are just some examples of limits that people have calculated for how close you can be, the inner limit, inner edge, where you um, you would be too hot. Um, sort of the, for an Earth-like atmosphere with the, our sort of relative hum humidity and the amount of water we have on the planet, you could maybe get in about as far as where Venus is. This is actually a little further out because of uh, some assumptions about uh, solar luminosity. Um, and then there's also, you have to consider the greenhouse effect. So this is a very complicated process. You have to understand what's in the atmosphere. And you might be gulping a little bit if you know, this is, sorry about the label, this is astronomical units. One AU is the distance of the Earth from the sun. And so this calculation is a little bit scary because that puts the Earth right on the inner edge of our star's habitable zone. Um, and then the outer limit is where you get too cold. And it depends on what sort of uh, assumptions you make about CO2 and um, the processes that keep CO2 in the atmosphere. You could get out to 1.69 AU. 
This early Mars limit is based on the idea that at some point in the past, um, Mars had liquid water on its surface, and the sun was a little, little fainter then. And if you take those into account, you can maybe set that limit at 1.77 AU. But this is just for our kind of star. And so if you move to, say, an F star or a K star or an M star, these numbers all change because the, the color of the star changes, the temperature of the star changes, the, um, basically the, the spectrum of the star changes. So this is just sort of a quick introduction to this topic. And there's even other ways that people come up with how we can make a world habitable. So the, the key is how do you come up with um, enough temperature or get rid of enough temperature to keep somebody habitable. So there's recently been some debate about desert worlds. These are worlds with very low relative humidity that actually would suppress the greenhouse effect, and so you could possibly move a lot closer. Uh, this is kind of an actively debated topic. Um, if you had a, an atmosphere that was composed mostly of hydrogen, you could actually get pretty far out because hydrogen is a very effective greenhouse gas. So you could maybe get out to 10 AU and still be habitable if you were all hydrogen. Um, if you were around a gas giant planet and you were a, a little moon like Europa here and you see all those cracks on the surface of Europa, maybe that gas giant can heat, provide heat to you in, in the form of tides. So Europa is being constantly stretched and deformed as it orbits Jupiter. And so we actually think Europa has a liquid water ocean inside because it's being kept warm enough by this, this tidal interaction with Jupiter. And we checked just before the talk, Europa will be visible tonight if we go up and look at Jupiter. And there are other sort of, uh, sorts of crazy ways that you can keep a body habitable. Um, for the most part, we should just focus on the, the, the typical definition of it's just that region around a star where water an Earth-like atmosphere would have liquid water on the, um, would keep uh, water liquid on the surface of a rocky planet. So how are we going to find such a habitable planet? Well, going back to these two pictures, step one is find that planet. So you got to know it's there to begin with, right? And we have found lots of planets, and I'm going to tell you about those in a second. And then step two is to characterize them. And so in step one, there's couple of ways we know about lots of planets at this point, and we actually have built up some pretty good statistics. And step two is how do we do this direct imaging, and then we'll look at some pretty pictures. So the main way we know about planets at this point is through these indirect methods. And by indirect, what I mean is, is we're not actually looking at the planet itself. We're not collecting light that has bounced off the planet or been produced by the planet. We're looking at the star and watching the star either wobble or blink. This has actually been very productive. We, as of this afternoon, it's over 4,500 either known or suspected planets. And 1,060 of those, that might be a little low, um, but over 1,000 of them were sure are planets. And we know about these from radio velocity technique and transits. And as I said, these methods are detecting the influence of the planet on the star, not the planet itself. So in radio velocity, what we're uh, using is the fact that the star wobbles as the planet orbits around it. And so I brought this um, uh, prop, which is my advisor, Laird Close, Professor Close, who's here tonight observing. As far as I can tell, this is his um, most prized possession, his biggest accomplishment. So I'm going to try to not break it. So 
when a, a planet is orbiting its star, you can sort of think about it as, a, as it's a scale with uh, two weights on the end, and then you adjust the location of the, the uh, this is great engineering, <laughs> the location of the um, center of gravity. If it's, if it's not at the center of gravity, they're out of balance. And so there you see, if I'm, and if I go too far the other way, that's uh, not going to work today. But if you can find the place where they're perfectly balanced, I'm going to cheat a little bit, but you can find a spot where they're pretty well balanced. That's the point where the planet and the star are orbiting. And so that in an orbit, the planet actually causes the star to wobble. And so as you can see this, as the star is moving away from you, you can measure its spectrum. And then as the star is moving towards you, you can measure its spectrum. And by analyzing that spectrum for Doppler shift, you can then figure out what the speed of the star is at various points in its orbit. And then that lets you infer the properties of this planet out here. So you're not actually seeing anything about this planet other than the star is wobbling. So the problem with this, though, is that most planets and stars won't be perfectly aligned with us like this. What's going to happen is they're going to be like this, or they're going to be like this, and a few of them will even be like this, where we won't even see that Doppler effect. There's a question back there. So the, the question is, what's the difference between a planet and something that's not a planet? Um, well, if, there, if this was a room full of astronomers, I wouldn't dare touch that question, because I'd have stuff thrown at me, and whatever I was about to say would be picking a fight with half the room. Um, so we know the difference between a planet and a star. A star is, some, is a ball of hydrogen that's big enough to sustain fusion. So it, it has a, enough mass that it can compress the hydrogen in its core and have self-sustaining fusion for billions of years. It's what we call the main sequence. And then there's a, a, a mass that we understand pretty well, which below that, uh, there isn't enough mass to, to build up the pressure to sustain fusion. And those are called brown dwarfs. And brown dwarfs then run this. This is about um, roughly 80 Jupiter masses. So 80 times the mass of Jupiter, give or take a little bit. And then all the way down to Jupiter, there's this spectrum of objects, of big balls of hydrogen, basically. And so somewhere in there, we are going to stop calling those brown dwarfs and start calling them planets. And this is where I would start picking fights with various astronomers in the room, is there's, how do you do that? Um, there's the number 13 Jupiter masses that is sometimes used to say that's a brown dwarf if it's bigger than 13 and it's um, a planet if it's less than 13. The problem with this is we know that there are objects out there floating around in space that are less than 13 but they're not attached to a star. So are we going to call those planets? And we know about lots of objects that are, say, 14 Jupiter masses, 20 Jupiter masses that are bound to stars and look very much like planets. And so there's some, I would say, evolving opinion, opinions and decisions being made by people when they write papers about what to call objects. And, and then, of course, there's the great Pluto problem of where do we stop for sure calling them planets when they get too small. And these are historically questions that are for standards bodies like the IAU, and I don't, the, currently there isn't a firm answer for the upper limit. But 
right now we're sort of, most people are using that 13 Jupiter cutoff and it has to be bound to a star to call it a planet. But don't be shocked if you read something in the newspaper about free-floating planets and about brown dwarfs that are orbiting stars because those, those terms are being mixed up quite a bit. So, so back to radial velocity, what we're seeing here is the wobble in the star. And this is a plot of the speed of the star versus time. And you can see that there's this characteristic signal. And um, this is a planet that actually, um, if it exists, happens to be in the habitable zone of its star. It's a little M star. Um, and for reference, Jupiter puts about 27 miles per hour on our, on our sun. So if we were observers around, say, Alpha Centauri um, A or B, looking at our, at our sun, we would see that 27 mile per hour wobble about every 12 years. And Earth, though, only puts about 0.2 miles per hour on our sun. So Earth is just a faint little wiggle uh, on, the, on a star as big as ours. And what we get out of this is we know there's a planet there. So this tells us for sure there's a planet making that wobble. And um, as I said, there's this tilt problem where orbits tend to be not perfectly aligned with us, and so we only get a little bit of that velocity. We can only measure some of it. And so that really only gives us a lower limit on mass, because we, we never actually can know that angle unless we take a picture of the planet. And then because we can then measure the period, so we can tell the difference between the humps in, the, in this curve, we can form an estimate of the distance from the star, and therefore we can get a temperature. The other method by which we know about lots of planets, and of those 4,000, uh, roughly 3,600 of those are, are uh, known or suspected from this technique. And this is where a planet passes in front of the star, causing the star to get a little faint. Um, and this actually happens in our solar system. Um, everyone will remember that Venus transited our sun uh, not that long ago, and so you could go out and see this. Um, for yourself. And if you use a big enough telescope and stare for long enough at enough stars, you'll see this happen. Um, and I'll, I'll point out this plot here is from uh, some work that we actually did. Um, an undergraduate here at um, the U of A led this uh, using the Mount uh, Bigelow Kuiper 61 inch telescope just up in the Catalinas. And so you can even go use a telescope like that and see a very clear dip as a planet passes in front of it. Um, so this has actually been a very uh, productive technique, especially because of the Kepler satellite. And this has um, been in the news a lot. Uh, this is where, like I said, lots of those planets come from. So what Kepler did is it just, um, that's a picture of the satellite from NASA. And this is the, in the um, constellation Cygnus, that it, this little block of sky that it stared at, that block of sky, that little patch, for, and did nothing else for three years. And just looked at those stars over and over and over again, and then looked to see if any of them got fainter. And it turns out that at least 3,500 of them actually did that. And um, so far, so this, the difference between a planet candidate and a confirmed planet, so the planet candidates are, Kepler has seen them, they've seen this transit event happen, they've seen it happen several times, and they've done a whole lot of processing to make sure that it's real and not, you know, just a, a uh, blip in their electronics, um, but, but still not good enough 
we still want to go down and follow them up with a ground-based telescope and look for a rate of velocity signature or uh, and make sure that there isn't a binary star or something else corrupting that image. So it, it'll take a while to get through those, but um, this number goes up about every week. And we also think that most of these are real. The, the Kepler team is pretty confident in their pipeline, so uh, something to the tune of 90% of those are likely real. Um, but just like the radial velocity planets, the information we get is kind of limited in that we know there's a planet there. And in this case, instead of mass, we get radius because we can see how much fainter the star gets. So, you know, a bigger planet is going to make the star get fainter and a smaller planet is going to have less of a dip. And because we can watch this happen over and over again, we can also figure out the planet's period, which then tells us the orbital um, semi-major axis. So we can tell how far away it is, and that gives us a temperature scale. And so, again, we're stuck with, we know the planet exists, we have an estimate of how big it is, in this case it's radius, and we can sort of guess its temperature. Now, this is actually pretty important. The idea that planets exist outside our solar system is a really big deal. So when I started graduate school in uh, 2008, we knew about something like 50, maybe, planets outside our solar system, and that discovery had just happened about 10 years ago when I started. And, you know, up until that point, we, lots of people would have told you, of course, there are planets outside our solar system, but we never had any direct observational evidence. And so today, we're at a point where that we suspect there are at least 4,500 that we can look at. And then when we do a bunch of uh, statistics with those um, numbers, correcting for all the ones that we know we can't see, we can actually start to put together some pretty fantastic estimates for the, the rate at which planets occur in our galaxy. And so from Kepler, we know that at least half the stars, 52%, have at least one planet within 85 days. So sort of the uh, orbit of Mercury is what we're talking about. So there's at least one planet around um, roughly 52% of the stars at that distance. This is corroborated nicely by ground-based radial velocity. So we got the same answer. We did the experiment two different ways with a bunch of different instruments and got the same answer. So this is a very, very nice feeling that we're starting to get that at least half the stars have at least half one planet within 100 days. And then this is my calculation, so nobody go out and publish anything based on this. But if you just take these numbers, and these are sort of the, they present tables, but they don't, they're not complete, and so they don't do this. But if you sort of just wave your hand and hold your breath, it looks like at least 65% of stars have a planet within 418 days. So, you know, that'll come and go and go up and down, and that's sort of a guess by me, but that's a pretty big number, right? That's two-thirds of the stars in the sky have at least one planet out there. And um, we also know that um, planets with multiple systems are common. So one of the things that Kepler sees is a star where it gets fainter and then gets fainter again before that planet had the chance to go around. And we're seeing systems of planets, five, six, I think the record is seven now. There's a planet, a star where we've seen seven different planets. And so again, this is very exciting. Taking that into account, the fact that when we see planets, we tend to see another planet, the minimum average number of planets per star is 0.98. That's almost one planet per star in the Milky Way, according to Kepler. So there's um, 
a bunch of caveats that you should attach to that because it's just the stars that Kepler looked at. But this number is only going to go up, I guess, is the, the most important takeaway here is that Kepler is not done analyzing its data and we haven't finished looking at all the stars in the Milky Way. And also this one was corroborated by a completely different technique that I'm not going to talk about called gravitational microlensing. But they also have um, reproduced this result of one or more bound planet per star in the Milky Way. So the big takeaway here is our galaxy is crawling with planets. They're all over the place. One per star is the average. Now what about the Hab zone? So remember before I had that list of different definitions of the habitable zone. And how you calculate this depends a little bit on, um, on which definition you use. And, and we could start getting into a bunch of complicated biology questions about what is life and do we need water, et cetera. But using that standard definition of, a, of the distance around a star where liquid water could exist on the surface of a rocky planet. From Kepler, it's 40 to 50% of K and M stars, so these are smaller, redder stars than our sun, have a potentially Earth-like planet orbiting them. Um, the most recent estimate for sun-like stars, so G stars, is 22 plus or minus 8. Um, this number is probably not the final answer, uh, but it's still pretty exciting. So roughly a fourth of G stars in the sky have a potentially Earth-like planet. So I underlined the word potentially here. And that's really what we're getting at. We now know, like I said, that basically there's one planet for every star that you see in this image. That's a lot of planets. And some of them might even be habitable. Places where humans could go live. But how do we know? How do we move from that underlined potentially Earth-like to, yeah, we know that's an Earth-like planet? Just can you share it? Yeah. So because you're the Sagan fellow, are you required to put that in your slide? <laughs> in the parentheses? Yeah, yes, actually. <laughs> let, me, let me say that properly. Billions and billions. Was that, was that a good impression? OK. So. As I've been harping on here, these indirect methods just give us a little bit of information. They tell us this planet exists, and we know its radius and or its mass, but even then it's only a lower limit on mass, and we get a guess, we know its separation, and we get a guess at temperature. I'll throw out a couple of caveats there that with transits, if it's a really close planet, there are ways to get a little more information, but nothing like this picture. And but we want to know its actual temperature, and we want to know what it's made out of. We want to measure its colors, we want to do chemistry on its atmosphere, and we want to understand what it's made out of and what, um, what its gravity is. And so to get from this sort of, yes, there's a planet, to wow, look at that beautiful planet, we need to get light from the planet itself. So what's the big deal, right? Why is this so hard? So this is a, a star that um, lots of you have probably never seen before. Um, it's called Beta Pictoris, and it's in the constellation Pictor, which is at uh, something like minus 60 declination, so it's really far south. So you have to go to South America to see this. And our, our joke on the MEGAO project is it's also the dumbest constellation in the sky because it's just these three stars in a line. <laughs> and you're supposed to think that that looks like a painter's easel. That's where the word Pictor comes from. 
So, but this is beta, so this is the second brightest star in that constellation. And if we zoom in on it, and we'll stop here and draw a circle, this is one arc minute across. So this is roughly the resolution of the unaided human eyeball. So if you were to look at this star, and that's about what you'd see. The star is 19 parsecs away, so if we zoom in another step, that's a 9 AU orbit. It's roughly one arc second across. So 9 AU radius, one arc second in diameter across the star. So this is sort of you know, starting to talk about um, getting into a Saturn-like orbit. And so our problem is, is this big blob. So this isn't perfectly honest, because some of that blob is just because this uh, photographic plate saturated. But um, the, the point is the same, that we have this huge, bright star that blows up into this blob, and we want to look inside there if we want to find an Earth. And so how do we do this? And the problem um, that we have that is causing that star to, to blow up into that um, big, gross image is the turbulence in our own atmosphere. And so what happens when light hits the top of our atmosphere, this turbulence, which is basically differences in temperature in the air blowing across our telescope. And even on the clearest, darkest night with, the, with very dry air, no light pollution, very beautiful weather, you could still have very strong turbulence in the upper atmosphere. And so even on um, what might otherwise look like perfect conditions, you would see this. And what happens is, is the light waves are corrupted when they come through the atmosphere. And so instead of a nice, perfect image of a star, you get this swarm of speckles. And then this swarm of speckles, so this is a simulation that I did of, a, of a, um, our AO system, the Magellan AO system. And this is a one millisecond snapshot. And what happens is if you try to do a long exposure, what this does is it just integrates into one big blob about that big. Whereas we're trying to look for planets in that part of the blob. And so the way we fix this is we use adaptive optics, which is a technique which uh, first measures this turbulence. So we, we form an estimate of what the shapes of these corrupted wavefronts are coming through the atmosphere. And then we deform a piece of glass a thousand times a second to exactly take that shape out. And then we get this nice flat uh, light wave coming back out of our AO system. And if you do AO, you can get from this swarm of speckles to this sort of concentrated um, piece of uh, image of a star. And if you do really good AO, you can get images like this, where you actually see the airy ring. And so if you study optics, and you, you'll know that this ring around the central image is actually a sign that you have a pretty good imaging system. Uh, the, the word that we use is diffraction limited. So that I started working on these simulations way back in 2008 and 2009 when I first um, started in grad school, and I didn't really know any better. So I remember I used to take my advisor images like this, and I'd be like, look what our AO system could do. And he'd be like, that's amazing, but you can never show anyone because they won't believe it. And you know, we went through this for a while, and it turns out our system actually performs about that well. And so um, it's a it's pretty fun to look back at these simulations and think that I was making them because I didn't know what I was doing, which is true. But then I ended up getting lucky, and um, it turns out that we can actually produce images like that, which I'll show you here in a second. But first, I have a video here to sort of illustrate a little bit more about how adaptive optics works. Uh, this is a very nice animation uh, actually made by the Gemini Observatory. 
And so what we're going to sort of see here is some of the moving parts of an AO system. So they're going to point this, the Gemini 8 meter telescope at a star here. And light's going to enter the system, bounce off the secondary mirror, and then go into this adaptive optic system. So I want you to notice the speckle pattern on the image that's going to look a lot like my simulation when the starlight first hits the, the display. So you see this swarming, the swarming speckles there. So here comes this corrupted light beam. And then what they did there is they closed the loop. And now they're sending this corrected correction information to this deformable mirror. And now watch the speckle pattern when that corrected wavefront gets there. And it turns into that beautiful sharp image of a star. Now I'll see if this is going to let me go again. Well, we'll watch it again. So the other thing to pay attention to, and mostly just because I can show you a, a firm example of this, is there's a beam splitter in the system. So this is how this works. There's a, an optic that takes half the light and sends it to the AO system so that the AO system can calculate and correct the turbulence, and half the light goes to the science camera. So that's this device right here. So half the light's going here to the AO system, and half goes over here to the science camera. So when they do this thing that we call closing the loop, where they shut this um, switch, uh, it's a lot, there's a lot more to it than this diagram makes it um, give you the impression. But So this is half that light's being used to correct the shape of the mirror. And we go from a speckle pattern to a beautiful, sharp, uh, airy pattern. So. Uh, this technology has been around for um, a couple of decades now, actually. And we're now in sort of the, I guess we say, the second generation of, of astronomical adaptive optics. And um, as part of my PhD project, working with Professor Close, um, we uh, developed an AO system that we took to the Magellan Clay Telescope in Chile. And this is a six and a half meter that was actually made here at the University of Arizona under the football stadium. And it's down here at Las Campanas uh, Observatory in Chile. And these are some of the components of our, of our AO system. So we, it's a little different from the movie that I just played in that we don't have a separate set of optics that does the, the correction. We actually install a secondary mirror that does the correction for us. And it includes this very thin shell. So this is 85 centimeters across, so it's um, basically three feet across. And it's only 1.6 millimeters thick. It's so thin and delicate that if you picked it up by the edges, it would just crack. Um, it wouldn't fall on the floor in a bunch of different pieces, though, because on the back of it, we have these magnets that are glued, um, 585 of them, in fact, glued on there. And those magnets fit inside these holes. I think you can probably make that out from back there. There's these individual holes. And one magnet goes in each hole. And in that hole is a little um, electrocoil, a voice coil, 
that we can change the magnetic field that it's emitting in a thousand times a second, pushing and pulling on those magnets, def deforming the mirror. And like I said, the, the mirror wouldn't actually fall into f 585 pieces. Would it, who wants a sticker? What would the mirror actually do if we broke it? My advisor is having a heart attack down here because he, I'm imagining our, our project falling apart. All right, nobody gets a sticker. It would go whew, like that into a ball because all those magnets would suck the glass together. That's, that's a theory. It's never been tested. So, um, this is the, uh, the sort of business end of our instrument. This is where the science cameras are. And these uh, electronics boxes control all of them. You can tell the box that I designed and work on because I put the big A on there for uh, um, bear down pride. And I'm going to have to put a big number one sticker on there now, too. Um, uh, this is what it looks like on sky. This is actually the first time we ever opened the telescope um, above our instrument, opened the dome. And so there's our secondary mirror. You can see the light reflecting off it. And this is an, um, our infrared science camera, Clio. Um, which I'm only going to talk about briefly tonight. Um, so that bolts onto this ring. And as you saw in the previous one, that whole ring turns upside down. So it has to rotate as we observe so that we can track the night sky. And this is it right side up. And this is our team. Um, it's sometimes only half the team. We have, it takes a lot of people. Um, and there's... At the time, four Arizona graduate students there and a couple of Italians um, and uh, Professor Close and Katie Morzinski, who's uh, here tonight, who's another Sagan fellow. Um, and you can get a sense of the scale of this telescope just from that image, if nothing else. And this is the Viseo camera. So this is our, um, where we can actually do visible wavelength science. This is also our wavefront sensor. And remember I pointed out that beam splitter in that movie where the light um, gets split off. And I still haven't fixed this. This arrow is supposed to go like this, not like this. I apologize for that. So the light comes in from the telescope and at this beam splitter we split it in half. And so we send half the light over here and this camera, and you see the cables, this is where the electronics are for this camera. That's the thing that measures the turbulence a thousand times a second. And then this camera over here is where we actually take our science images. And it's kind of blown up here. Um, it's, I would say, twice as big as it actually is on that screen. Maybe it's actually a pretty small, compact um, little Swiss watch. And with lots of cables um, sort of uh, meticulously placed and after you work on something like this for a couple of years, you get to know get to know the camera really well. And you know, I think uh, Laird and I can tell individual stories about these cables like they're family members at this point. Um, but so this is this is kind of my baby. Um, so this is this was my PhD project um, along with another grad student, and um, and it's also Laird's baby. We we all worked on it together, but. Um, spent many years making this work and got it um, down to Chile and put it on sky and took some wonderful pictures. And so this adaptive optics trick that I was talking about, it um, originally just worked in the infrared, so in very long wavelength light that you can't see with your eyeball. 
And there are good reasons to start there, because it's a longer wavelength. It's easier to control your, the requirements for how accurately you're deforming that mirror are lower. And the turbulence is actually moving faster. And so this system is really the first one that's worked in the visible on a large telescope. And by large, I mean you know, five meters or greater. And so using this, we were able to take this image, which is of a 32 milli arc second binary star in the trapezium cluster. And just to put an arc second in perspective, so tonight, say, when we're out there looking at the moon, pluck a hair from your head and then hold it out at the end of your, at arm's reach. And that hair is going to be about one arc second across in the narrow way, not in the long way if you have long hair, but in the, in the narrow way. And so we were, that's 1.0 arc seconds. So we, this image is 0 0.032 arc seconds from here to here. And it turns out that this is the highest resolution image that uh, we've ever taken. And I don't mean we like our team, but we humans. And um, there's a lot of caveats to that. There are ways to get information with this much spatial resolution in it using interferometry and um, other imaging techniques. But the thing we're really proud of is this image is an honest-to-goodness photograph. We just pointed our camera at it, opened the shutter, and stared at it. And this is honest-to-goodness visible light. If your eyeballs were six and a half meters across, this is about what you would see. It's even about the right color. So, um, and just to put that in perspective, this is roughly three times sharper than the Hubble Space Telescope can do. To drive that point home even further, this is what you would take without adaptive optics, is this blob. And this is the same spatial scale in this box and in this box. So that shows you how fine a point it is. And then we're blowing this up to get to this 32 milli arc seconds. And this is a star that you can um, look at pretty easily with a um, small telescope. It's right down here in M42 in the trapezium cluster in, the, in Orion. It's the bright one. So, uh, yeah, someone just said that's a binary. That, so we knew that was a binary before because the same radio velocity technique that I was talking about is called a spectroscopic binary. And it had actually been split using an interferometer. Um, but this is the first time someone's ever done it with a whole telescope at once. We call it field aperture imaging. So we're very proud of that. So back to beta pick. So that's Viseo working on a bright star showing its high resolution capabilities. What happens when we point beta pick or point Viseo at beta pictoris? Well, we already knew that beta pick had a disk, so this is actually one of the most well-known dust, dust disks in the sky. Um, it's very bright, and as you can see here, it's actually very big. So this, um, you can actually find images of this on the internet with amateur telescopes. Um, this was actually taken at Las Campanas um, way back in 1984 by a U of A astronomer. Um, and so this is an image of a big disk of, of dusty debris orbiting the star. And it's um, been thought for a long time that that is going to be a signpost of a planet, of a planetary system, rather. That that's one of the steps to forming planets, is a star having this debris disk. So zooming in again on that 9AU orbit, and if we zoom in even further, so now this box is roughly an arc second across. You see this little white dot down there that I've helpfully circled in red so you don't get confused by all the other white dots. 
this is the first time an exoplanet has ever been imaged from the ground using a CCD. This is a little bit of a, you know, incremental improvement. But this is a, a detector that could use visible light. Now, this isn't visible light. This is actually a lot closer to one micron. But this is another thing that we're very proud of. So our Viseo camera was actually able to take a picture of this exoplanet. As you can see, thanks, Tom. I guess that's Tom's opinion of my data reduction, that he thinks that. The problem is it's actually very faint in the visible. So as you can see, there's some other blobs around here that are kind of bright. And I don't recommend trying this at home. This is about nine months of signal processing that went into producing this image. It's very, very hard to do. And, but the nice thing is we had Clio and my fellow, fellow Sagan fellow's work over here using the Clio image produced this, the Clio imager produced this image at M prime, which is uh, five microns of a very far red uh, wavelength where it's very bright. And see this red circle and this red circle? Those are identical. So we're very confident that this planet, this is the planet. It's at the exact location. Remember I showed you that image before where you saw Clio mounted on the telescope and it was on that big black ring? So these images were taken at the same time. So we have these two cameras operating at exactly the same time. So we're very confident that this is the same planet. Um, so one thing to take away from Beta Pictoris, and th there are several other planets kind of like Beta Pic, that, um, that we have taken direct images of is that it's about 12 times Jupiter mass. And um, so pretty firmly in the planet regime. It's on a 9AU orbit, so it's pretty far outside the habitable zone. It's well out there where if this was um, an actual rocky planet where it, wouldn't, it would have frozen water on its surface. Um, at 12 times Jupiter mass, it's not rocky. This is a big gas big gas ball. Um, and it's young. It's only 21 million years old. This is a, a, another image. This is from uh, ESO. Anne-Marie Lagrange was the, um, one of the earliest people to, to posit that there's a planet around uh, Beta Pic. And then she took the first image of the, of the planet. We've been watching this planet for long enough that her group has been able to see it move from one side of the star to the other. And then this is superposed on a very nice high resolution AO image of the disk. So that's what you're seeing is this nice, beautiful, dusty disk. And you can get an idea. So the planet's actually orbiting in the plane of the disk. And um, studying this, even though this, this um, planet is young and it's big and um, not really like anything in our solar system, it's still, this is a very important laboratory for studying planet formation. So us watching this planet move around the disk um, watching it interact with the disk. So you can make out some features here, like that sort of, we call it a warp in this shape here. Um, we're pretty sure that that's because of the disk, the planet and the disk are actually interacting. So this is a really exciting thing to be able to watch this planetary system um, go through orbits and see changes, watch the planet move, and try to infer um, how it's interacting with the disk. Another exciting thing that's come out of uh, the Magellan AO project is we actually discovered a planet. And you might have seen this in the news last month. Um, so uh, a University of Arizona grad student, Vanessa Bailey, uh, led this uh, 
analysis. And this is an image from Magellan AO and Clio of HD106906B, which is that little guy up there. So that's 650 AU from its star. So that's a pretty wide orbit. And certainly well outside the habitable zone. For reference, this circle is Neptune's orbit. Um, but I do want to point out that this is, um, as far as we know, the first exoplanet discovered by a U of A team. So we're all very proud of this. And this was done with Magellan AO. And it also got a lot of nice press. So um, we made CBS and NBC. And there's also a petition on the internet to name it Gallifrey. <laughs> By the laughs, I know some people know what Gallifrey is. So this is Doctor Who's homeworld from the, the sci-fi series Doctor Who. And um, I just checked this afternoon. There's a, the, the petition has 139,000 and some hundred signatures. So if you're interested in helping out, you could jump on there. And Vanessa has also officially lodged her support for this, which I guess is an important step in getting the IAU to pay attention. So maybe this will be changed from this to this to Gallifrey in the future. So we've just sort of taken a tour of exoplanets today. Um, we know about a lot of them. We've only taken pictures of a few of them. And the ones we have taken pictures of are large. They're roughly 10 times the mass of Jupiter. They're very far from their stars, even ridiculously far from their stars at 650 AU. The ones we're finding are young, and that's because they're, as young, young planets tend to be hot, so we, um, have, we can see them easier. And there's, sorry. Their stars are not very sun-like, so because they're young is really why I'm saying that. But we've also found them around things like A stars. Beta Pig is actually an A star, so it's not even um, very similar to the, the sun. So none of these are really like our planets, and they're not really like most of those 4,400 planets that we know about. Kepler actually finds planets that are much more like our solar system, and same with radial velocity. Um, but this is sort of just so far. Um, like I said earlier, from my perspective, this is just getting started. And so imagine when we go from the six and a half meters and the eight meters of today, and we go to the 24 meter giant Magellan telescope of the future. And if um, you haven't been on a mirror lab tour lately, you should go on one now because this is actually being made in the mirror lab right now. You can go see these eight, these are eight meters across each, each one of these circles. You can actually go see these being worked on under the football stadium. And just for scale, there's an astronomer right there. So that's how big this telescope is. And so instead of these um, big, self-luminous, young gas balls that we're talking about today, we think the GMT is going to let us actually start to find things like super-Earths. So a super-Earth is something that's maybe two Earth radii instead of one Earth radii. And ice giants, sort of like the Neptunes and Uranuses that we know are there now from Kepler. We know these planets exist. And with GMT, we expect to be able to start taking pictures of these kinds of planets. But now, what about Earth? So Earth is even smaller than those planets. And the, the image planets, say Beta Pig B, is 100,000 times fainter than its star. But like I said earlier, Earth is 10 billion times fainter than the sun. So 
and right now we think that the very best um, systems on the, on the ground, so this would be like the Gemini planet imager or the sphere planet imager, these can maybe do 10 to the 8. So a factor of 100 away from being able to see an Earth. So the solution to actually taking an image of an Earth is going to be space telescopes. Because if you get above the Earth's atmosphere, then you don't have to worry about turbulence. Even in space, it's going to be hard. So it's, um, you can't just launch a 24-meter telescope into orbit. And even up there, you still have to worry about things like the sun changing the temperature of your spacecraft and deforming your mirror and then making speckles, the, causing um, imperfections in your optics. And it's a very challenging thing. But I think what we're doing today and, and learning about these planets and, and first confirming that they're there and then taking these first baby steps into taking images of these planets is we're laying the groundwork for eventually being able to do this. So it's a very exciting time to be studying extrasolar planets. Um, well, that's all I have. Thanks from the whole Magellan AO team. Um, I acknowledge all of my collaborators. Laird and Katie are both here in the front row if you want to ask them technical questions. Um, Professor Phil Hins is also here at the University of Arizona. He's played a big part of it. And we also have a big team of Italians who helped us with some of the optics and a bunch of U of A grad students and many, many others. And I just want to put in a plug for our website. Um, um, right now, it's probably kind of boring because we're all home. But you, when we're in Chile on an observing run, which usually lasts for about a month, we post at least once a day with lots of pictures of the Chilean wildlife and the control room and all the, we like to make fun of our advisor on there, so if you want to see jokes about him. And um, if you think you deserve a sticker for your participation or just want one, you can come down and get one. And these also have our website on it, too, if you want to get that. Okay, thanks. Thank you very much, Jared, for an excellent lecture. And we have time for questions. Does anyone have questions for Dr. Mayles? I ask you to please speak into the microphone. Um, so we all know life exists in frozen water yeah. and in the desert and so forth. So why are we only looking for liquid water? Well, so it's a good question. So okay. all those forms of life we think need liquid water at some point, or they at least liquid water was required to develop those forms of life. Um, so in other words, to say that you know life exists in frozen water, it, you couldn't take that frozen water and take it all the way down to, say, liquid nitrogen temperatures and never let any of it become liquid. I don't think life would exist there. Um, water is sort of important because it's just such a good chemical solvent. It's, chemistry happens in it very, very readily, and there are very few other things that work that way. And chemistry also happens fairly rapidly at the temperatures at which water is liquid. So um, these are, you know, it's sort of... People have thought about this. They've said, why couldn't we have life in some other chemical using some other processes? And it just waters the best answer we have. It's just the most likely thing. You know, like I, when I showed all those Habzone definitions, you know, I'm not even getting into all of the other things that we're talking about. You know, people talk about, uh, you know, a methane cycle that works like water and things, you know, at, low enough temperatures, you could maybe do that. So there are people talking about that and working on that. This just seems to be the, the most likely way to be successful at finding life. And it's, it's also prejudiced by 
the way I framed it, and this is how I think about it, is it's habitability to me means a place where humans could walk around. There is the interesting question of other kinds of life, but you know, maybe the first one is, what about our kind of life? So. Question up here. Could uh, Gallifrey be a captured rogue planet as opposed to having formed in the disk? Um, well, <clears throat> we thought about that, and it's a possibility. Um, Capture is very, very difficult to work out. It just, um, it, it's something that doesn't happen easily. We are pretty sure it didn't form in a disk. So we think that this, it actually formed more like a, a binary star or a brown dwarf because to have a disk that big and that massive, uh, we just can't imagine that happening. I mean, when I say imagine, I mean we can't calculate that happening, basically. So we don't think, we wouldn't, I, I think very few people would say it formed like a planet. I'll leave it at that. Next question. You said that um, and on average we see <coughs> excuse me, approximately one planet per star, uh, but I would assume that some percentage of the stars have no planets. Yeah, that's right. And, and that there's a curve that says, okay, 1, 2, 5, 9, 14. Um, what's the, the prevailing of, of stars that have planets? What's the prevailing average? How many planets do um, we know? I don't know the answer to that off the top of my head. Um, like I said, that, so that we, when we see a star with more than one, we tend to see bunches of them. So three to seven, you know, it's more like it. But I don't actually know the, the actual number. So it's actually a complicated problem because, you know, if you think about what's required for us to detect a, a transit, you know, that planet has to cross exactly in front of the star, and if it's tilted just a little bit, you won't see it. And as we know in our solar system, our planets aren't all in a line. And we don't really expect all planets in other solar systems to orbit exactly in the same plane. And so even when we see just one or two, there could be other ones that we're missing. There are ways to find them. We can measure their effects on the other planets in the system. But that takes a while. You have to watch things happen over and over and over again. So we're sort of still collecting those statistics. So. Yeah, on your adaptive optics, you've got your splitter mm -hmm. and you're measuring the wave turbulence. Do you need some kind of a standard signal so you can know how much turbulence there is? How do you determine yeah, your so correction? We do have a standard signal. We do need one. And the standard signal is we assume that the star is a point source. So stars are so far away that even though they're not perfect points, they're so far away that they effectively are in our telescope. And so we basically just start the problem assuming that that should look like a point source. And it doesn't because it's um, spread out by turbulence. And so basically what we're trying to do is turn that back into a perfect image of a point source, which is that airy pattern that, with the ring around the central core. So that, you know, it's not exactly the ideal situation where you have some other reference, but it's, it's almost perfect. I have two questions. They should be fairly quick. The first one is you mentioned 6.5 meters. Mm -hmm. So is it uh, you, ha you have those telescopes because anything smaller than that you can't use the adaptive optics with or you don't gather enough light to see what you're looking for? And the second question is, well, I'll let you answer that first. Oh, okay. Well, so um, we like bigger telescopes for two reasons. And one is, uh, as you said, we get more light. So we're the, our observing is more efficient just because it's, 
it, the amount of light you collect goes as the area, so the diameter squared. So go from a three meter to a six meter, you actually get four times as much light, not two times as much light. Um, the other thing that goes into an image like that is the resolution, which goes as one over the diameter. So the resolution is how close together two objects can be and you can tell them apart. So like that image of the binary star that I showed. Um, the reason that we're able to see those two stars next to each other is because we're on a big enough telescope that we can, res we can resolve them. So adaptive optics works on smaller telescopes, but to actually get to that sort of resolving power, we have to be on a large telescope. And the second question is, um, so how do you block out the light from the host star to be able to directly view the planet? Right. So um, here I can back up to those. So that is a problem. These stars are very bright, even when we control the light so that it's not washing away our So even when we control the light so that it's not washing away our planet, there's still this intensely bright star right in the middle of that image that I've helpfully blocked out here. And we actually, in this camera, we actually just have a piece of metal that we put in front of the beam to block out that, that star. And there are some other tricks that you can do. It's all, we call all these techniques coronography. So we put a coronagraph, which is just some way of, of blocking that light. Um, because you know, I, I was bragging about this being an image on a CCD. One of the problems with CCDs, when you saturate them, they bleed. And so you end up with this big streak of light running through your image. And that would be, make this a nightmare, even more of a nightmare than it was to, to dig out this planet. So you do have to worry about that. Question here. Do you think that we will ever be able to detect moons around exoplanets? And if so, with which methods? Uh, that's a fantastic question. Um, I do think we're going to be able to detect moons around exoplanets. Um, so the, the transit technique is actually uh, a very good one to try to do that with. Um, there is actually a, a, at least one major project trying to do that with Kepler. So if you can imagine you have a, a planet that's transiting its sun, and then so the sun gets a little bit fainter, and then right after that, it dips again because it's dragging this moon along. And then the next orbit, that moon's orbited, and so then it gets fainter in front instead of behind. And so you can work out that that little dip is being caused by a moon. Um, but they haven't found any yet. So there was just a paper in the last week, actually, that came out saying, sorry, we haven't found any yet. Um, but it's uh, actually a fantastic quest that they're on, and they're working really hard on it. Um, the other way that we're going to find moons is actually through direct imaging. So you know about Jupiter's moon Io, and it, um, which we're probably going to see tonight. And Io is just being tortured by Jupiter. It's, the, it's so close to Jupiter that it's just being pushed and pulled, and it has volcanoes on its surface. And it, so one of the things that this tide, it's called tidal heating. So it's the tides on this planet that are deforming it. It actually heats that planet, that moon up to the point where if under certain conditions and certain assumptions that a tidally heated moon like that could be the brightest thing in a solar system other than the sun, other than the star. Um, so, uh, so it's actually a, a former student of Laird, a former um, Arizona undergraduate, has led some studies of this. Um, it's a very interesting prospect for finding. It's actually the way to image that planet would be to image its moon. Whether or not, then you start to get into all kinds of questions about 
figuring out that you were looking at a moon and not the planet, things like that. But we are definitely going to see moons one way or the other. We'll take one more question. Okay. Uh, making a calculation for the habitable zones, you have to have the albedo of the planet, the candidate planet. Yep. What do you assume for your albedo, or do you calculate it? Well, so, so yeah, so this is one of those topics that um, is a whole lecture on it by itself, I think. Those calculations that I showed you, those numbers, those are for an Earth. So those are basically, you know, given a, 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 a complete copy of the Earth, and you moved it out and you moved it in, how would its atmosphere behave? So that's where assumptions about albedo come from. But then this, these questions of what if you had a desert world? What if you had a, 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 a water world that didn't have a, any heart, any um, continental surface on it? Then you do have to consider things like, well, the reflectivity of the surface is going to change. It's going to change the energy budget. So now you do have to take this into account. So it's more than just assuming a single number. These, those calculations are actually very complicated atmospheric circulation models with models for um, you know, changes in the surface, changes in the cloud coverage, things like that. So you do have to worry about it and in some detail to actually really understand it. I'd like to remind you that our next lecture is two weeks from tonight. That would be January the 27th, and it will be our director. The seventh director of Stewart Observatory, Dr. Buell Januzzi, has only been in office now for about a year and a half, and he will tell you about some of the exciting science that we do here at Stewart Observatory. And, well, he's the director. He can really talk about anything he wants to talk about. Um, so we hope to see you, and the students will be back, so we hope to see you two weeks from tonight on the 27th. And the telescope should be open. It's the white building with the white dome on top. Go in the door, go up two flights of stairs, and there should be two friendly undergraduates that will show you Jupiter and Europa and Io and the moon. So let's give uh, Dr. Mayles a hand one more time. Thank you.